All right. Good morning, everybody, here in uh, our, our main campus here on uh, Montrose Boulevard, and all of you joining us online as well. I want to thank all of you for being here. Wherever you are in the world, you're a part of the story this morning. also wanted to say a quick thanks to our team that makes this online experience possible. It's easy to overlook that team week in and week out, but our, uh, our ladies and gents who make that team possible and make this outreach work, thank you. And thank you all for joining us. I'm glad you're here, uh, joining us in person here in Houston, Texas, uh, over at the Timber Grove Campus in the Heights this morning, they've got a preacher named Meredith Kirk who's giving them a message today, and she and I kind of wrote this message in concert, so you're not, uh, it's, it's pretty much the same message, but different preachers. And you've had quite a few different preachers lately. I've uh, been traveling a little bit with my family. Uh, it's nice to get away. We missed out on vacations in 2020 for obvious reasons. <laughs> and then last year's trip got canceled uh, for all kinds of reasons. And so it's been nice to get away. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that trip in just a minute. But I just want to thank uh, David Bennett, who came from Oxford University to speak a few weeks ago. Terry Williams, who brought the word two weeks ago and did a great job um, starting off our series that we're in now, and last week, Pastor Kale came over from Timber Grove to speak here live. We are so blessed by so many voices that can just speak some, some power in our lives and some truth, and, and so uh, we've been especially blessed lately. I feel like a very lucky pastor to be surrounded with so many gifted speakers. So if we don't know each other yet, maybe you've been coming around since uh, we left and, and uh, you liked what you heard, and now... The main pastor's back. I hope you like me, too. I don't know. It's, 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 it's a coin flip. Um, but my name is Eric, and I'm one of the pastors here at The Story, and um, it's really an honor to be back. I love uh, to get away and kind of get my voice back, literally, and all that. But, um, but it's good to get back in the saddle and, and get going again. Uh, today's message is going to be one that's of universal application. It's not always the case that what I'm talking about up here applies to everyone. Sometimes I have to give that caveat, like this might not be you, but you might know someone one day who's struggling with it. <laughs> this is not one of those. This is everybody. And if you don't think it's you, it's mostly you. All right? So, so this is part three of a series of messages called The Seven Deadly Sins, uh, Slamming the Doors to Darkness. And the seven deadly sins are something most people have heard of or familiar with, but interestingly enough, they're not found in the Bible like listed verbatim. It's a church doctrine or a teaching that developed. Now, it's old, and it's rooted in Scripture, so we should pay attention here, but it's not verbatim in Scripture. It comes from about 1,600 years ago when church leaders noticed that even the most committed Christians who gave their lives to Jesus continued to sin. And they wondered, what's this about? How can we get a hold on this and, and warn people about the, the path to sin? And so they searched the scriptures. And one of the things that they found was that while all sins are dangerous, some sins are more dangerous than others because they function as doorways or gateway sins that open us up to all kinds of other categories of sin. There are some sins that are dangerous, but just in their own right, right? You, you steal a pencil from the bank or something you've stolen, and that doesn't really lead to a bunch of other slippery slope sins necessarily. But there are these seven that when the door is open to them in your life, you're vulnerable to all kinds of other spiritual attacks and temptations. And so that's how we got the seven deadly sins. And you've already heard uh, other preachers I mentioned earlier talk about greed 
Last week I made kale preach on sloth because I didn't want to talk about it. It's like the least interesting of the, <laughs> of the seven. Thank you, Pastor Kale. And then I let him go on vacation or something, so it's a reward system here. But uh, <laughs> sloth was last Sunday. He did a great job with that. And today um, we're going to talk about wrath, anger, rage, gone wrong. Right, so uh, that awkward silence you just felt in the room was everyone realizing what I meant with this is everyone's problem. And yet there's still some of you who, who are the type that goes, when someone pops off, like, wow, he really has anger issues. He needs to get that checked out. Not me. I'm calm, I'm peaceful. Well, okay, are you calm and peaceful? because you're a better person, or are you calm and peaceful because you drown your anger in rosé and Xanax? Like, which is it? <laughs> like, we have to be honest and ask ourselves what we're doing with our anger, because anger is a universal problem, okay? It, it's just that we all handle it and manage it and cope with it differently. Now, um, Fresh off of vacation, I've had a few days, just a few days to decompress. I feel I felt a little bit less prepared for this message in some ways than I normally like to be. Just had less time to prepare. But in other ways, I felt inordinately prepared to talk about anger today. Because I was angry a lot this week. Um, not for the same reasons uh, you've seen other people getting angry. I think in, in America, you've seen a lot of anger in the streets and things because of things going on in our culture and the Supreme Court decision and all this stuff. But I, got, I was angry before any of that hit the, hit the news. I had an angry week because while the first nine days of our 12-day vacation were probably the best family vacation we've ever had as a family, my little family of four, those nine days in Ecuador visiting Gio's uh, family, or my in-laws, you know, all the Ecuador is such a beautiful place, full of wonderful people. We had nine wonderful days. But as I said, it was a 12-day trip. <laughs> and so uh, somewhere around the, toward the end of the ninth day, uh, this, this weird thing kind of happened. It was weird to me. Ecuadorians were like, yeah, this happens all the time here. But for me, it was super weird. It was uh, sort of an invasion or insurrection of sorts, and from my perspective anyway, of people who lived in outlying areas of Ecuador, rural indigenous um, protesters flooding the streets of the city of Quito where we were staying, where my in-laws and my family there lives. And, uh, you know, at first, tens of thousands of protesters, whatever, it just felt to me like some one more cool thing to experience overseas. Because I have a soft spot in my heart for protests. I used to be a social activist. I think that peaceful protests can be a really active, uh, creative way to enact social change when it's needed. And these protesters were protesting things I thought I could get on board with at first. Corrupt government, that's bad. High inflation, that's bad. You know, I'm, I'm like, I got I got on board with the protests in the beginning, but as the hours of protests uh, went on, the days went by, the protests grew more violent. And the violence led to bloodshed in the streets and uh, all kinds of things happening where the whole city was shut down. I was mad selfishly because we couldn't do all the things we had scheduled to do the last three days of the trip. We were literally shut in the house 
with my in-laws, which isn't how I plan to spend my vacation, okay? So I'm a selfish and awful person, okay? That's what I'm saying. Very selfish sometimes. And the anger started to take over. But where I really got angry is when I saw it affecting my kids. My kids started getting scared. I get angry when my kids get scared by these intimidating sort of forces. And that's just a natural thing that fathers and mothers are going to feel when they see their kids getting scared and they have no control over the situation. Uh, and these guys, uh, many of them, had war paint on their faces. And it wasn't like Saturday morning game day college football war paint. It was like you could tell they meant business. It was like the real deal. And they had spears that weren't Halloween spears. They were like they had been used before for something spears are used for. Like they had stains and stuff. You know, this was, this was scary business. They, these guys could have done whatever they wanted because... Uh, you know, as I frequently reminded my wife, there's no Second Amendment in Ecuador. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever said the words, honey, I missed the Second Amendment until this week. Um, so, so I just felt defenseless. I felt powerless to do anything to protect my family. What's more is they were blocking all the major roadways in and around uh, Quito, including the roadways leading to the airport. So when the day came for us to get to the airport to get our flight home, uh, this is a picture I took. I know it's a little unclear. We were standing at a distance because we came up on these barricades that they had created, burning barricades made of burning tires and sticks and stuff. Sticks. I mean, they were trees in the road. And we sat there and waited for like an hour for something, anything to happen. I don't know, a nice rainstorm would have been great at that point in time to put out the fires or maybe, I don't know, God's fire from heaven to smite the evil one. I don't know, anything, anything to get us to the airport at that point in time because we needed to get home. Even though, you know, everybody knew it was dangerous, taking our lives in our hands to try and get there, the thought of staying in a country that was spinning into chaos didn't sound good either. And we had other reasons to want to get home. This week was a big week in our lives as a church for different reasons, but, but one of those is my friend and our brother in Christ, Cam, who I baptized here in January. This was his big surgery week after fighting lymphedema all these years and fighting the pain. He had his amputation this week. And I wanted to be there when he woke up and to, to be there when he saw his his leg for the first time after the surgery, and Cam wanted all of you to know that he's doing great, and he'll be back with us soon, but it's going to be a long road to recovery, and y'all keep praying for Cam. His mom and daddy are right down here. Pray for um, Cam and his family as well. We also wanted to get back for a funeral. A good friend of ours, Leanne, her mom had died, and, and uh, we wanted to get back because the funeral was here, and I was going to officiate it. We had all these reasons to get home, and, and so this barricade presented a challenge to, those, uh, to, to that goal Eventually, about an hour later, uh, the national police showed up just when we were about to give up and go home and wave the white flag and just wait it out, in which case we probably still would be there and y'all would have another guest preacher today and all that. You'd get home on time rather than what I'm going to do to you. <laughs> uh, the national police showed up and cleared part of the barricade and put out part of the fire and made it possible for us to get through to the airport. Man, we pulled up to the airport and uh, got all our luggage out and walked into that airport. I thought, Phew, it's over. Praise God. We're safe. You know, now we can just relax. And, uh, and then, uh, then we walked up to the ticket counter to get some assistance from United Airlines. <laughs> some of you know. I felt the pain in that little chuckle. Some of you know. 
what I'm about to say. I don't know if you've all had the pleasure of dealing with the customer service experts <laughs> at United, but I haven't either because they didn't show up to the airport. There was no one there at the airport. This, and I'm, I'm thinking in my anger, my anger is bubbling over now. I'm just thinking, this is the company whose aircraft bears the red, white, and blue of old glory. And here are, we are, American citizens with hundreds of other American citizens in a country embroiled in crisis and chaos. And, and this corporation that's received billions of dollars in subsidies and payouts over the years, my dollar, taxpayer dollars can't even show up in our hour of need. And we found out through other channels, not from United, but all of us on that United flight back home to Houston found out that our flight had been canceled. And we were stranded. And no one from United was even there. I tried to call United Airlines customer service line. The robot lady told me that my estimated wait time was 40 to 45 minutes. An hour and a half later, I was still listening to Muzak and just bubbling over because I was roaming internationally. <laughs> so my T-Mobile bill is going to be like $15,000, I think. I still never got to talk to anyone. Have you ever felt that kind of helpless anger? You know what I'm saying? All of us have some degree. That anger only increased as I looked around the airport and saw that American Airlines was still flying the friendly skies and, and, uh, and, and British Airways was still up, up, and away, and Aeromexico was still arriba, arriba, or whatever, I don't know. And, and like, <laughs> and even this little thing called Grupo Taca was like not canceling any flights. And there we were, stuck. My kids my wife and I in a foreign country with all kinds of crazy news reports coming to the surface, not knowing what to do. Well, <clears throat> about uh, 12 hours later, the whole time of which, by the way, I was having this conversation with God in the back of my head, the whole time, the whole few days, really. And I'm thinking, God, I get it. I know this is the week I'm supposed to talk about wrath and anger. I get it. It's like, <laughs> you made your points, all right? Ha ha. Can we just get home and then I'll preach a good sermon and we'll be good again? That's the conversation that was going on in the back of my head for the next 12 hours. But 12 hours later, uh, after we got to the airport, we were standing in line with our boarding passes, uh, handing our boarding passes to this very nice young lady who said, Bienvenidos a Grupo Taca. Uh, welcome to Group Otaka. And uh, we boarded the first of our three flights home on that highly improvised 18-hour, $3,000 extra dollars trip <laughs> home. So I'm ready to talk about anger today. That's what I'm saying. It's the whole reason for sharing that long story is that I am ready. I'm well acquainted with anger, and I know I'm not alone here because I've been watching the news and I know there's a lot of angry people in our culture, not just because of the news on Friday and how we've seen protests in this country from all of that, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we had protests at our churches because of that and things like, you know, that, that's the world we're living in. And um, I've spoken out on that topic in the recent past, and so, you know, that's just the reality that we're facing. It's just an angry world. 
But far be it from me to stand up here and judge people who get angry about things. I just spent, you know, the better part of last week being, you know, seething and boiling over with anger. We all deal with anger. Some of us just erupt in our anger, and others of us just repress it really well. And a lot of times when you grew up with an eruptor, the vein-popping, red-faced, big eyes, you know the person. Usually it was dad, sometimes it was mom. When you grow up under that person's roof, a lot of times it gets easy to, to learn how to repress really well. Some, some of you are master repressors and compartmentalizers. And then there's this third category of us that are the sickest of all. We have found a way to do both. We are hybrid eruptors and repressors. It just depends on who we're around. What we do is we repress all the anger evoked by strangers and acquaintances out in the world, and then we erupt in anger at those we love the most. That's how we show our love, is that we erupt around those with whom we're the most familiar, and they pay the price for all the compartmentalizing that we do day to day. It's a really sick game that we play sometimes with our anger, but wherever you are with this, I just want us all to confess that we've got anger issues. I once heard a psychiatrist say, and I love this quote, but I also am sickened by it, all right? I heard a psychiatrist say, anger is like a small child. You don't want to let it drive the car, but you shouldn't stuff it in the trunk either. It's <laughs> just a terrible reminder that psychiatrists are twisted people sometimes, all right? So, uh, <laughs> but if you're laughing, then you are too, and so am I. So uh, it's still a good point. Sometimes we let our anger drive the car of our life, and others of us will stuff it in the trunk and pretend like it's not there, but we know that it is, and it cannot be that easily dismissed. However you deal with your anger, you've probably gotten the message that anger itself is wrong. And when you feel anger or express it or repress it, there's something wrong with you for being angry. And in a gracious way, I just want to dispel that, that myth that anger is bad inherently. Anger is not bad inherently. Anger is designed to be a gift. Wrath is designed as part of our having been created in God's image. It's designed to be a catalyst for something good. Some of the best things that have ever happened in societies, in the world, in, in individuals' lives began with an angry moment, an angry realization that things aren't as they should be, that I am not as I should be. And some people leverage that moment of anger into some real transformation whenever the anger is directed at the right place, not at people that we decide to hate, people we decide are our enemies, but instead at the problem itself, which is easily defined as sin brokenness, darkness, evil. When we direct our anger at that, anything is possible. Any kind of transformation can happen. But so often, we don't do that. Instead, we opt for the easier solution, so we think it's a solution, and that is pointing fingers and blaming and shaming and excusing ourselves while condemning others, all right? In the Bible, it's pretty clear that anger cannot be considered entirely or inherently sinful because God himself experiences and expresses wrath. I mean, this is the only one of the seven deadly sins that is attributed to God sometimes in Scripture. 
You never read in the Bible the lust of God or the greed of God or the gluttony of God, but you read plenty of times where it says the wrath of God. And so anger cannot always be a sin. Jesus entered the temple and turned the tables over because of the greedy money changers there who were taking advantage of the poor. He got angry with them. It was a righteous indignation. And so if you experience anger, it doesn't mean it's inherently sinful. It just means you should be careful with how you choose to express that anger and where you choose to direct it. Okay? So in light of that, I want us to look at a story that's going to feel somewhat familiar. I love to teach from the book of Genesis, not least of which because it's uh, easy to find. It's the very first book in your Bible. If you want to grab a Bible in your, the chair back in front of you and turn to page 5, how easy is that? Page 5 in your uh, Old Testament here, it's Genesis chapter 4. Okay? So... What's happened right before this story I'm about to read is that Adam and Eve, first two people in uh, creation, took the forbidden fruit, were cast out of the Garden of Eden uh, by God because of their sin as a consequence. And then they had two sons in the beginning. They had uh, Cain, who was firstborn, and then they had Abel. Cain and Abel grew up to be very different men. Cain grew up to be a farmer. Abel was a shepherd, okay? Uh, And at one point in time, they both chose to bring offerings before the Lord. And for some reason that's not entirely clear in Scripture, God received Abel's offering but rejected Cain's offering. We don't quite know why. I'm going to talk about why we don't know why in just a minute. Maybe you'll pick up on it when we read this. Um, But but after God rejected his offering, Cain gets uh, angry. Let's start in verse 5 of chapter 4. So halfway through verse 5, It says, so Cain, y'all with me? It says, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, pay attention to this question. God's first question is rich and profound. Why are you angry? Not, don't be angry, not get over it. God just wants to know why and God wants Cain to know why Cain is angry. Because that question is the key, one of the keys to unlocking this this puzzle. Why are you angry? What exactly are you angry about? God asks Cain. Then uh, he continues, why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. So you must rule over it. Verse 8, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. So remember what I told you about the seven deadly sins, how they're gateway drugs of sorts? Already you see how this works with anger. Cain's anger led not only to murder, but now it leads to lying to God's face. I don't know where my brother is. He knew right? And so it's, a, it's opened a door here. Whereas before, what did God say? God said, Cain, I know you're angry. Why are you angry? And then he said, sin is crouching at your door. In other words, it's outside your door. Cain hadn't crossed the line into sin yet when he first felt angry. The sin was outside the door, but God warned him, don't crack the door open because that's all the enemy needs to devour you. 
Okay, and just to finish this up, uh, the Lord, uh, uh, Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? Probably another sin there, smarting off to God. I don't know, it's a little snarky. And then the Lord said, what have you done? Okay. So, it says Cain wasn't just angry, but very angry. But even in his being very angry, he had not yet been devoured by sin. It was outside. This is, a, this is a consistent biblical theme. In the New Testament, um, Paul wrote once, uh, be angry, but don't sin. Actually, he said, be angry and don't sin. Isn't that interesting? You ever think about the Bible saying it's okay to be angry? Be angry, he wrote in uh, Ephesians 4, and don't sin. All right, we get the same sense from God's conversation with Cain. He hadn't crossed over into sin yet, but he was angry, and he was in danger because of his anger. So the question for us is, how do we discern whether the anger that we feel is righteous indignation or whether it is toxic and deadly sin? How do we know the difference? How can we honestly evaluate ourselves, especially when, and considering that, Anger has such a way of uh, increasing our capacity for self-deception, let's say. When you're angry, you're more likely to see what's wrong with other people, and you're less likely to see what's wrong with you, typically. So let's dig into this. What are some of the signs we can look for? I think there's a, a few things to look at uh, to know that your wrath is going wrong. First is if your truth becomes more important than God's truth. We have God's truth written on our hearts. We have God's truth in our consciences. We know right from wrong. If you're a Christian, we have the Bible that we look to as an even more detailed explanation of God's truth. And yet when we're wrapped up in toxic anger, it's so easy to do away with all of that truth that we know and instead to give in to the truth that we feel. And when the truth that I feel in a moment trumps the truth of God that is written on every human heart, that's how I know my anger has crossed the line from righteous indignation into something deadly. Okay, that, we see that with, with Cain, right? Uh, it's interesting to me that uh, God doesn't uh, accept Cain's offering and we don't know why. Well, one of the reasons we don't know why God doesn't accept Cain's offering is because Cain never even had the humility to ask. Cain just had this assumption that he was right and entitled to God's blessings and that whatever God's opinion was of Cain, it was inaccurate and maybe his no good little brother had told God something that wasn't true and God believed it. You know, you can see how this conspiratorial thinking works whenever our minds are infected with toxic anger. And Cain was obviously infected with it. He never even said, God, what can I do? How can I change? What can I give that you would find acceptable? You know, God always rejected offerings of people in Scripture because of their hearts, not because of their gifts. Something was off with Cain's heart, but he didn't even stop to ask. He just assumed that God 
maybe with Abel's help, was wrong about Cain. And he just assumed this. And, and I think in this way, we're living in a Cain generation, a, a sort of a, a generation. I don't mean one. I'm not beating up on the millennials or any, any Gen Z, anybody. It's all of us. I mean us together as a generation. There's a sense of entitlement that comes over us, a sense that I deserve the best. And, you know, whenever someone else gets something that I deserve, it's like we get a, a chip on our shoulder about it. We feel entitled to things. And when others get blessed in ways we'd like to get blessed, we just assume life is unfair. Something's wrong with God or them, not me. And that's what happened to Cain. And that's one of the telltale signs of anger gone wrong in your life is how it blinds you and makes you incapable of self-awareness. This entitled perspective is exactly what we should watch out for. It's that sin crouching at the door, waiting to devour us. That's a sign of wrath gone wrong. A second one that I'd like to look at, and we see it in the story as well, is when, let's call it their sin, is a bigger problem than your sin. Anybody ever feel this way? Like, when you do something, you ever feel like, it's easily explained and perfectly understandable. Because I have so much going on, and I'm busy, and my plate is full, you guys. And when I cut you off in traffic, it's because I'm late and important. <laughs> but when you cut me off, I never stop and think, oh, they must be late and important. It's just part of our fallen nature to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and give others no benefit of any doubt and just, just assume the worst about others. When I mess up, it's just because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm human. But when other people mess up and hurt us or let us down, disappoint us or whatever, make us mad, we don't stop and think, oh, it's just because they're human. This is one of those... Um, consequences of toxic anger that we can easily bring home with us. And I see families and relationships struggling, like some of y'all would not believe, some of y'all would, but some of y'all would not believe the extent to which anger affects our family dynamics and the health of our homes. Anger not properly dealt with can just destroy relationships because what it does to us is it, it deceives us into a duality of thought. Because whenever in the home I forget to do something someone else asked me to do, maybe something I promised to do, it's because there's just so much going on and I don't know what's happening in this house and I'm doing the best that I can. But when my child or my spouse or someone else under my roof does something they promised me they would do, it's because they don't love me or something. It's like it's a different level of, of judgment and expectation. It's a duality that is uh, inequitable. And if we think yeah, I mess up because I'm human and overwhelmed and they mess up because they're careless, uh, you can see how that creates uh, dissension in the ranks. This is how anger destroys relationships by causing us to lash out inequitably. A third way that we can look out for this uh, problem of anger is when revenge becomes more important to us uh, than forgiveness does. 
Obviously, this was a problem for Cain because uh, Abel didn't even have anything to, uh, to say I'm sorry about, as far as we can tell. Abel wasn't the guilty party. You know, Abel was an innocent bystander in this problem of anger Cain had, and yet Cain still needed vengeance. And I see this a lot, you guys, even with Christians, especially sometimes with Christians, who feel unsettled by the state of the world or the state of our country. And I see a lot of uh, Christians, even, you know, when everything was wrong with the world, it's like Christians were quick to complain and, and get angry at those lost people out there. And, and since Friday, I've seen a lot of football spiking among Christians. You know what I mean? A lot of spike in the football, celebrating the decision that was handed down by the court. And uh, y'all know, most of y'all know, I guess, where I'm at with that issue. And it, part of me does celebrate. I can't deny that, that this decision is, uh, it means that, uh, you know, abortion is no longer uh, federally codified. But, friends, we should be careful not to allow the anger we have felt on that or any issue for years to spew over in a time of celebration, at a time when people are especially thin-skinned and wounded and hurting. And it, This should be a time for the church to get to work in the love of Jesus, reaching out to people with whom we might disagree, but this is the moment for the church to finally show what the church is here to do. You think Friday's decision is, an, is a finish line for the church? Better not be, because there's going to be a lot of mamas and babies that need a lot of love. There's going to be a lot of people that need a lot of care. Are we going to leave it to the government to do that while we're over here spiking the football? God forbid. But sometimes in our anger, we miss the point. And Christians are just as susceptible to this as anybody else. And if we're angry about something, it better be anger that spurs us on toward Christian love instead of just wagging our fingers and, uh, and saying, I told you so, or what have you. But sometimes that's what anger does to us. It causes us to want vengeance and victory in a worldly sense instead of victory in a heavenly sense, which means forgiveness. Now, I think we all know that forgiveness is the key to our anger issues, but we get forgiveness twisted. And we think that forgiveness means something like being a better person, uh, being more understanding and tolerant. Oprah says that forgiveness is just saying thank you to someone who's wronged you. Thank you for that experience. Is that what forgiveness is? Is it found in self-help books? Or is there something more? Look, for Christians, forgiveness takes on a different flavor. And I know some of you are not Christians, and that's okay. That's what we're here for. The story is a church that is here for skeptics, and so that's great. You hear us singing songs about the name of Jesus, and you're like, what are they so obsessed over with the name of Jesus? What a beautiful name, wonderful name, powerful name, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Like, what are they so excited about? It's just a name, okay? What you need to know is that we understand the gospel to be something entirely unique, 
in the landscape of world religions and even secular worldviews. Only in the gospel of Jesus do we see forgiveness lived out this way. Not, not in a way that is uh, self-helpy, just behavior modification, just be a better person. No, forgiveness begins with being forgiven. Let me tell you what I mean. This is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, where Paul says what you might see in like a self-help book at first, get rid of all bitterness. Stop being bitter. Don't be ragey or angry. Don't brawl or slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate. Thank you, Paul, for that Hallmark card, right? But he doesn't stop there. He says, forgiving each other. And then he says, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So the whole sentence, the whole uh, passage is present tense. Be these things, do these things now. But the last part of it is past tense because God already did that for you. It's almost like we should read the sentence backwards. Start with what's already happened and read it back into what should happen. And the reason this matters and the reason the gospel of Jesus is so earth-shatteringly different is because forgiving those who've hurt you or angered you doesn't begin with you mustering the goodness from within to forgive someone. And it doesn't mean you have to sit around and wait for someone who's hurt you or angered you to ask for your forgiveness. It's so much more liberating than that because it begins with being forgiven first. Only forgiven people can forgive. And in the economy of justice, we know that's how it works. If you're carrying around a heavy note on your account or physically carrying around a heavy burden, what capacity do you have to absorb anyone else's burden that they owe you? Anyone else's stuff that they would have to give you if you forgave them, really? If you're carrying around your own stuff, you're not going to have the hands, the power, the strength, the resources to cover their debts. But Paul reminds us the gospel truth is that Jesus already covered every debt, paid every debt that we owed. What did God do with his anger, his righteous indignation, his wrath toward us? He left it on the cross. This is another passage from Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins, all of them, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And if God saw fit to leave every ounce of his wrath there at Calvary on the cross of Jesus, then so should we. And every time we go to God in prayer, it's like we're unloading more of our stuff onto the cross of Calvary. It's like we're leaving it there. And then we go back out in the world empty-handed with all of our strength and resources at our capacity to, to forgive and take on the burdens that others might hand to us, even, even those that have angered us, even those that have frustrated or hurt us. And then we take those burdens, and next time we pray, we go back to Jesus and lay them at the cross. That's the freedom of the gospel. You're not beholden to your feelings when you're following Jesus. You're not limited by your own capacity to find it in yourself to forgive. You forgive because you are forgiving. This is the key to unlocking the problem 
of anger in our lives, <laughs> redirecting the anger that we naturally feel away from just being vitriolic and hateful toward people and toward instead uh, being catalysts for change, change that looks like Jesus and his kingdom. I was convicted about this in a number of ways over this past week. What anger did to me is it caused me to forsake the humanity of people I was angry at. And you heard it a little in the story I told earlier. Because those protesters that I was so mad at, I stopped seeing their faces. I stopped hearing their stories. I stopped considering that their mamas and daddies trying to pay higher prices and provide for their families, and this is their only outlet, their only voice. That didn't matter to me at all because I was mad. Those United employees, I didn't stop to think. I, I pictured them being like from Houston, Texas. They just happened to live and work at the airport. Where are they when I need them? Like those are mamas and daddies too who would have had to take their lives into their own hands to get to work that day. But I couldn't see that because of my anger. A few weeks ago when I preached about abortion, actually, I, I likened that, I, I sort of, tied that story in with the Uvalde shooting story, and, and I talked about the 21 lives that were taken in Uvalde. And I was convicted after one of those sermons when a friend of mine came up to me afterwards and he said, I just wanna say this with all gentleness and respect, you're wrong about the 21 lives. 22 people lost their lives that day. And he asked me to include the shooter in my prayers, in my talks about what happened. That's next level mercy my angry heart wasn't ready for. But if you've ever loved someone who's been disaffected, mentally ill, spiritually possessed, whatever's going on there, you know how important it is not to forget them in the count. As if they're not human somehow. When they are. How easily we are blinded by our anger in ways we are unable to see. But for the gospel of Jesus. When you are forgiven of your debt, you're freed up to forgive. Have you given him your burden? Have you given him your sin? We talk about it all the time. Maybe you're a churchgoer, you're a Christian by name at least, and yeah, I'm, I'm born again, whatever, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, but have you given him your sin? Have you experienced the forgiveness of the cross? I would suggest to you, if you struggle with anger because you can't find it in yourself to extend forgiveness to someone who frustrates you to no end, it might be because you have yet to receive the forgiveness of Jesus yourself. And you're carrying around your own burden of shame and guilt every day, unable to pick up the burdens of others because your hands are full. Give it to him. Leave it at the cross today. His forgiveness is for you. And once forgiven, you will forgive. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for this reminder today of <clears throat> how we are to uh, live, even with anger sometimes, and what we're to be angry about and how we can let our anger spur us toward greater lives and needed change. Father, for everyone here in person and those listening online, I pray that you would give us the strength to be angry at what we should be angry at and to forgive that which we should forgive. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.